Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Uh, very glad that you have joined us. My name's Cameron and we're diving into Hebrews nearing the end of the book now. And my name's Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Uh, Ken's, Ken's not with us. He's on an aeroplane at the moment flying up to visit uh, one of his kids in Brisbane. So um, he'll have to listen in um, after after this is published. Now, uh, we're up to Hebrews 12. We had a bit of fun last week with Hebrews 11. Um I don't recollect ever really having read the last two chapters. We're into the denouement, the or maybe not the denouement, maybe it's the finale. Uh, but we're certainly in the closing arguments. Um, the crescendo. The, the, yeah, the crescendo. And so one would suppose that it would be unfortunate to read Hebrews and not read these last two chapters if these are the, the final sort of clinching of the argument. But that seems to have been my position, so I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in and seeing what's here. I might kick us off and start reading. I'll read from the NIV, and I'll read the, uh, the first couple of verses of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakes, partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjugation to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Work at living in peace with everyone, and work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Shall we just pause there? Um, yeah. There's a number of things occurring to me. We're a little more than halfway through the the chapter, but there's some things that might, some trails that might go cold if we if we rely on our memories too much further. Well, uh, off you go. I wanted to draw attention to this idea of discipline because I uh, two ideas occurred to me as we were reading through it, especially when we got to the bit verse eleven. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. Mm. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I can't help but feeling that that verse must have been used throughout Christian history by by parents or yes. teachers. Or <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I think I've heard it, it. 
I, I, I don't know that it's been so much directly quoted, but the context I offered here it in, and it's, it's troubling to me, I don't know if this is a good use of the sentiments of this verse, is, is when people suffer inexplicable pain in mm. life, you know, um, a cancer or an illness or an injury or, a, you know, a bereavement. Um, and, and the sentiment is often, well, God has, you know, and sometimes very artlessly expressed as well um, with, with perhaps a lacking of empathy that, you know, but, but very good intentions. Um, God has allowed this to happen to make you stronger or better or, mm. or, or, yeah. or more righteous. Uh, and then sometimes with less good intentions, uh, God's allowed this to happen to punish you and make yeah. you repent. Um, and I, I'm uncomfortable with using the sentiments of this verse as a sort of, as a sort of procedural explanation for bad, for painful things. Mm. You know, I don't think... Because uh, there's a logical fallacy in it, which I've just realized, which is that all discipline may be painful, but not all, everything that's painful is discipline. Yeah, yes, uh, I think that's that's correct. <laughs> that's very close. That's better better expressed than I was going to. That's very close to this to the concern that I was that I was feeling, but couldn't quite voice. Um, no, that's that's very accurate. I, I the other comment I was going to make is surely. Surely the way that you read these verses is informed by because the very the very verses themselves draw analogy to human parents. Mm. Yeah, you know, so God remember that God is treating us like like his children and children are disciplined by their parents. So God is disciplining us. But necessarily that means that we we hear these verses and we picture God's interaction necessarily influenced by our own picture of parental discipline. Mm. And for example, it used to be normal to give students the cane at school mm -hmm. in the name of discipline. Mm. It's now not only unusual, but illegal. <laughs> um, so, at least in Australia. So, that reflects a changing approach to an attitude towards discipline in the human realm, to me, that necessarily impacts the way that we're going to understand these verses describing God disciplining his children. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, surely, Luke, the sending of or, or the allowing of cancers and pestilences and, and suffering of that kind, that's much closer to a stick, a cane being administered in the deputy headmaster's office. Well, and I think part of our distaste for that is that we, we don't, recognize those things in the human realm anymore as being I, appropriate I discipline. Look, that's, that's another reason why I'm very comfortable with this idea of automatically equating anything painful with discipline from God in that, and, and particularly for people who may be a sufferers of childhood trauma, hmm. um, the reaction they will have to the idea that, um, you know, something something painful in their lives is a discipline from God, is to perceive God to be an abusive parent. Mm. You know, not all dis as 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 you're saying, we we don't take all forms of discipline um, to be appropriate discipline. And I would say, yeah. even in eras in which physical uh, punishment, you know, cap not capital punishment, that's a that's a different thing. 
What, what's what's um, what's is there a yeah? Um, it's it it's similar though. It, corporal, isn't it? Like corporal. body. The, yes, yeah. yes. Corporal, even even in eras where corporal punishment was commonplace, you know, a decent folk would not would not tolerate you know a, a parent beating their child to the point of serious injury over a trivial offence. Mm. You know that would always yeah. have been considered inappropriate punishment. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so I think we have to be very, very careful before we the go around teaching people. The flip that... side of this... Uh, yes, go, go ahead, is, uh, Sorry to interrupt, Luke. Uh, speaking about this, uh, <clears throat> I've personally experienced, for someone I care very much about, uh, being mistreated at school and the, bu- the bully involved completely off the hook uh, because the school believed only in positive reinforcement. We're not going to comment mm. on kids' bad behaviour because that draws attention to it. We'll only mm. commend, we'll put all our emphasis into commending good behaviour. And my observation is um, that that attitude has some commendable elements but is not working. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, I, I agree that that seems to be imbalanced. And, and I would refer to conversations we've previously had on this podcast about restorative justice an idea that that takes harm and hurt and offence very seriously. It requires serious resolution, but it doesn't require retaliation or retribution. Mm. And and I think this is the you know the idea of giving the stick. You know, a, a, a kid at school. The only time I ever received such punishment was a, a a ruler to the back of the knuckles in grade one. I think for saying a bad word. So what is it about the saying of a bad word that that is balanced out by the hitting on the back of the hand with a with a with a stick? It's a, it's a, I, I think that probably that that logical inconsistency captures the idea very well. I don't think that the people who um, endorse that form of punishment believe it to be logically consistent. I think it's just at the level of Pavlovian conditioning. Yeah. Okay. It, it's it's a deterrent. So. Uh, but even not necessarily a conscious deterrent, just associating a negative sensation with... I mean, there's a whole separate discussion to be had here. One of the things is that it is true that... And discipline doesn't have to mean discipline in terms of for poor behaviour. Discipline might mean the discipline of learning the piano or the mm-hmm. discipline of, of... It is good that discipline or the discipline of becoming a scientist, it, it does necessarily... Or a pilot, does necessarily involve many unpleasant things well it's it's Mm. it's interesting fundamentally um discipline could be defined you know particularly self-discipline but you know if it's not self-discipline it's just someone else imposing the the constraints on you discipline is primarily about what you choose not to do in my experience Hmm. it's it's you know um in choosing not to do certain things, you free up your time and attention to do other things that are maybe less pleasurable, but more important or, yeah. or more moral um, or more appropriate uh, or more responsible. Um, it's very hard, I think, to approach it the other way around because the temptation when you don't choose not to do the, the things that are getting in the way mm-hmm. is is to try and have everything. Um, and that's a very great failing, I think, particularly in modern society, where the widespread assumption is often made that you can sort of have everything. And the message that you can have everything, 
you know you can have you can mm. have kids and a great social life and a rewarding job um, and lots of energy and time to have hobbies and and the corollary is if that's not your experience you're not doing life right then you, yeah then you feel like a failure in comparison to this this ridiculously yeah. unrealistic image mm. and it's 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 fascinating we don't even realize this is an unrealistic image this is an image that's a thousand times more unrealistic than having a you know a healthy and attractive body in middle age which is a very achievable goal if you know says someone yeah, who depending doesn't on one. circumstances uh, depending yeah. <laughs> on circumstances but but it's a genuinely achievable goal whereas to have the social life of someone who is single in their 20s the income of somebody who's who's highly educated in their 60s the lifestyle yeah. of somebody who's uh, married without kids in their late 20s the family life of someone in their late 30s with kids um mm. and the world outlook of of a child who's untroubled and unstressed is literally completely 100,000% impossible it's a really mm. good mm. comparison because we we do talk a lot about the dangers of 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 promoting you know unrealistic body image mm. on people yes. but we don't talk about unrealistic Un- unrealistic life image yeah an important part of of discipline is in is in picking and choosing. Mm. Mm. Is is in I think the step one of discipline is in even realizing that there has to be a choice. My choice yeah. is mm-hmm. I yeah. play computer games for six hours now and don't get enough sleep, yeah. or I study for two hours and get enough sleep, and then according yeah. to the results of that choice, I either pass my exam or I maybe don't. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it lies in realizing there's a choice and choosing not to do something. Yeah. And the harsh reality, of course, is that it, at the most fundamental level, it's a zero-sum game, meaning that you can't, yeah. no, not, you can't win everything. You right? the, everything. Winning in some aspects means necessarily not winning in others. And, and that, that, at the most basic level, is imposed by the finiteness of our, and, of our earthly lifespan. And one of the roles of parents is to, is to help children realize this. <laughs> which does, which does, which does, and I, I think you were right, Locke, to to say that um, these sentiments have sometimes been used by adults who are essentially bullies on people smaller and less powerful than them. But that's not the that's mm. I think um, a, a disingenuous use of the text. Um, the the analogy is I think a good one. As parents, it's your job. To break bad news on kids that they can't have everything, um, yeah. whether or not whether or not you give them the cane, or whether or not you give them a stern talking to and send them to their room, or whether or not you um, impose some monetary consequence, or whether you impose whatever mechanism, and I know mm. uh, different cultures at times have endorsed and felt more comfortable with different mechanisms, but they all do involve introducing yeah. discomfort into the life of your kids. And that's certainly that's certainly true of the of the restorative justice. Um, it's not comfortable. Mm. Yes. So what what then is the is the characteristic of parental discipline that can divide it from parental abuse? Huh. Uh. <laughs> that's um, very. How big. can we define them as two separate things and make sure we're not accidentally doing one when we try to do the other? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to throw one thing in. Sometimes yeah. discipline as a parent doesn't even involve any sort of, um, I was going to use the word arbitrary, any sort of adjustment of the scenario, but simply a, a, a 
realistic identification of the of the scenario. So when you were talking about, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's parents' jobs to break this bad news to, to kids that, that they just can't have everything. The picture that came to my mind was my son who doesn't particularly enjoy going to bed and he he'll often get to the point of the evening where it's bedtime but he'll say but yeah. I, I can't go to bed yet because i haven't yet read this book or done this activity or yeah. or do whatever yeah. and and I, i've noticed it's be it's a it's a pattern and i have to say to him well look i'm sorry that the time is the time if there's things you haven't done today unfortunately the, the day is finished um, yeah, yeah. there's plenty of things I wanted to do today that I haven't been able to do today. And yeah. I'm going to have to either find a workaround or put them off till another day. Mm. Um, yeah. this is just the way the world is. It's the way time works. I'm not, I'm not actually, there's no, that is a sort of discipline, isn't it? Uh, but I'm not, I'm not 100%. disciplining him in that moment in the way that we would traditionally associate with that yeah. word. But it's, it's just as as verse 11 says here, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. He, it's not pleasurable to him to have to real, to be confronted with the reality that, oh, bedtime comes about whether I've finished my list of things I wanted to do this afternoon or not. <laughs> That's hard. And I think part of the life of faith is saying, is part of the life of faith is saying, all right, God, there's going to be sometimes where I'm just willfully on the wrong track and I'm heading to mm. wreck and ruin. And a short, sharp wrap over the knuckles, or a, a talk, talking to, or some direct, you know, mm. what we where we began our conversation. Some direct, something. There will be times where I need to snap out of the mood or the course of action that I'm in, and um, I'm glad that God is able to do that. It's going to be other times where my worldview is just wrong. I'm expecting the wrong thing, um, and things are not turning out the way I like, and. Um, and I'm suffering these discomforts. And Hebrew says, treat those discomforts as discipline. Mm-hmm. So when when you say when you say, ah, oh, rats, is this is rubbish. Um, this is not the way my life was meant to be. This is etc. 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 Say saying, all right, there is something, there is something here. There may genuinely be. I mean, sometimes my kids complain about things which are genuinely worthy for complaint. Mm. It's also just sometimes that's you know it's very hard to know what to do. I think I think that what we are agreed on is that we can't then impose this on other people, especially at a time where we're actually doing quite well. And I have a passage here. This is breaking a long drought. I'm going to read an excerpt from Adrian Plass. Ah, woohoo! Andromeda Veal is aged eight, and she's broken her femur, and she's in traction in hospital. She comes from a divided home where dad's been long absent and her mum's an ardent feminist and, um, uh, you know, I have nothing against feminists, but this particular feminist insists on reading things like uh, the Communist Manifesto to Andromeda as she's going to sleep as an eight-year-old. Or it's not the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> it's the Little Red Book, I think. Anyway, it's it's some, you know, oh, highly sort Chinese of politically charged. Yeah. So, so this is the context from which poor little Andromeda, she's now in hospital all alone, for months and months on traction. And one of the members of the church writes her this letter. Dear Andromeda, it was with abundant joy that I received the wonderful news of your hospitalization. How marvelous to suffer as you were doing. What depth of gratitude and deep thankfulness you must be experiencing as you lie in the privileged position of one who is allowed to enjoy pain and discomfort hour after hour and day after day. Hallelujah. How you must delight in and chuckle over those verses which reveal the inestimable benefits of regular immersion in the rich baptism of physical anguish. 
how I envy you your glorious opportunity to participate in the ecstasy of awful agony. Oh, to break a femur, what happiness. <laughs> to slip and crash to the ground, causing serious injury, necessitating a long period of intensive institutional care. What could be more welcome? How your faith must be blossoming in this invigorating atmosphere of profound disability which surrounds you now. And then he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to come and visit you soon. <clears throat> Andromeda, a few days later, writes this letter to her friend Gerald. Dear Gerald, you know your friend Charles at Deep Joy Bible School who sends me peculiar letters? Well, the last one was all about how fracturing your lemur, because she thinks she's fractured her lemur, not her femur. She's got... <laughs> and being an attraction was acy-pacy, brilliant and all. Loony, eh? Anyway, he came to see me on Saturday and he danced into the ward, not looking where he was going. Charles promised that he would dance in, enter your ward with a dance of elation and greet you with a word of celebration, was the phrase that was used. Anyway, he danced in, not looking where he was going and stubbed his big toe on the end of a big metal thing and started hopping around saying bad words through his teeth. It was great. I decided to cheer him up, Gerald, so I said, Oh, to stub a toe. What happiness. What redundant joy to have an acy-pacy pain in the foot. I wish I was lucky, old you hopping about, Charles, old chap. Let's hope the lovely agony lasts a good long time, eh? Hallelujah. He was very cross. For a little while, Gerald, and then he suddenly laughed, and he was nice like he used to be, and not like a robot. They must have special robot classes down at his school, eh? Do you have to get special permission to be normal when you're a Christian, Gerald? If you don't, someone ought to tell everyone. Ah, <laughs> uh, that is that is fantastic. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty much straight straight to the point about mm, about what we've been discussing, well isn't expressed. it? Maybe um, we should get on with the rest of the verses here because yes, there are okay, more. Yes, good idea. That we'd completely yes, kick us off, Luke. About. Yes, yeah. all right. Um, I, oh, thank you, Cam. I get to read the bit I wanted to, which was the description of the, the mountain uh, in the wilderness. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirit of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Oh, wow, that's an odd comparison. I'm derailed there. Well, I'm going to have to come back to that. <laughs> um, uh, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For God, for our God is a consuming fire. I'm You're not shaking. doing so well. I'm shaken. <laughs> what What is the, in verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And the sentiment here is that we've come yeah, to so Jesus. Yeah, so let me read it. Let me read it from the New Living Translation, which is uh, which is slightly more interpretive, I suppose. Oh, I'm in the it, New King James. I thought I was in the New Living. There you go. Well, that explains it, some it, of the language I was I was. Yeah, well, but there. it was appropriate there for the, for the, um, 
awesome trumpet blasts and the darkness and gloom at Mount Sinai. So, so I think every there's a place for this sort of thing. But here's verse 24 rendered in the New Living Translation. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. So you'll remember when Cain kills yeah. Abel, God comes to Cain and says, well, you know, where's your brother? That's right. And Cain, Cain says, well, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, but I can hear his blood crying out to me from the ground. Mm. There's that sort of phrase yeah. used. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess Hebrews here might be interpreting that. I, I don't know if it's specifically called out in Genesis as being a cry of vengeance. Well, it's interesting because, of course... Uh, Abel's blood doesn't get vengeance. God doesn't kill Cain. Yes. Mm. But, 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 well, the implication there is that uh, it would have been just for Cain to have died. It would have been appropriate. Yeah, I think that I personally don't quite agree with that, but I'm very, very comfortable to accept that the, the culture from which the book of Hebrews was written would almost certainly have felt that instinctively, yeah. Luke. Mm. That 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 the death of Cain would have been just and right. Yeah, it's it, so Cam. What I got from from eighteen eighteen through to twenty four is the contrast between the law, because you know coming back to earlier things we've got in Hebrew, the the terrifying, fear inducing mm. nature of the law, as opposed to the the welcoming, forgiving new covenant. Mm. Yeah, um, it is. It is though. It does suggest that the new things, not altogether a bed of roses and you know lovely and comfortable. Oh, no, because no. there's an reference that you know on Mount Sinai he only shook the earth, but now he's going to shake up everything. Like it's almost yeah. like what what's happening now is more serious. And um, we've commented before about the author sort of treading a fine line, exhorting exhorting people to stay true to their beliefs. And you would have to say in the book of Hebrews that the emphasis is much more on the carrot than the stick. The emphasis is on how excellent Christ is. And yeah, so, so, um, you know, <clears throat> if we feel a bit uncomfortable about these sort of drastic images of judgment, we have to, in the balance of the book, they're not the emphasis. But it, I mean, it is true that um, the choices we make are serious. Mm. Mm. And I think that that's. That's definitely the sentiment that's pulled out here. Don't think, don't think that your, um, don't think that this moment is insignificant. This moment, as you sit there and ponder whether to to stick with Christ, mm. this moment right now is is the significant moment. Like like because the the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai is, is sort of a sort of a climactic moment, and it, the author is sort of associating our everyday experience with that moment. We're sort of yes. always at we're sort of always at that moment that that great. You know, uh, I was going to say crisis point, but it's not a crisis; it's a cli- climax point. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Is almost simultaneously they're saying things are, are are not as bad and scary as they were. They're better than they were before, but they're also more important than they were mm. before. Mm. More than more than just a, a, a mountain shaking. This is all of reality shaking. Yeah. So there's the comments you're making are. are I had a thought that related back at the end of our discussion about the discipline, and I'll let it go, but I need to bring it up again because it's so in line with what you're saying. Back in verse 3, which is the the lead-in to that discussion about 
discipline that, that was quite interesting. Verse 3, think of all the hostility he, Jesus, endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. The, the emphasis leading into this chapter is of, yet again, encouragement. Mm. It's, it's trying to say, stick with this. You know, and we've identified this as being a key motivator for the author of Hebrews throughout. The author of Hebrews is, is talking to people and is sort of trying to paint a whole lot of snapshot word pictures for them. You know, the, why, what can you leave to go back to? Everything that was important has been superseded in Jesus. He's the, he's the better priest. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better sanctuary. He's the better, better than angels. He's better than humans. But yet he understands that, you know, everything about this is better. So don't give up. Don't give up. That seems to be mm. a, a catch cry of Hebrews. Given that that's the main idea, it seems that the discussion about discipline should perhaps best be understood as uh, the author having a go at attempting this 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 fundamental idea. Things won't always be perfect for you. There'll be tough bits, but don't give up. Um, in other words, Luke, perhaps it's more like the 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 well-meaning. Um, if it is at all like the people that you were describing that identify hardships as being disciplined from God, it, Hebrews is at least the well-meaning one who is saying, okay, these hardships might be from God, but stick with it. Don't give up. Well, Locke, there's, there's an element to this, which is that a disciplined figure is, um, is itself a comfort. My students complain about having to do assignments and tests. They complain mm. sometimes about being made to do work. Um, I tell them all that uh, regular, constant regular assessment is, is a huge safety net psychologically. And that mm. if they want to discover something much more stressful than having a test every three weeks, it's how about when you're an adult in your job and you don't get regular updates on your progress? Mm. What happens when you're a parent and you finish the week saying, I just don't know if I did that right? Mm. You know, mm. did, I, did I manage that right? Was that was that right? Um, and of course, when people do go as adults and they want to do something really interesting, they they find themselves a life coach. They um, <laughs> they have a they want to go on a diet, so they get a friend to go on the diet too, so they can keep each other accountable. They, um, you know, you think of the the professional tennis players who have a, a full-time dedicated coach they have they have dedicated sparring partners to play with um they have they they commit themselves to and they actively go out and seek for other figures that can be around to help them mm. stay on the straight and narrow in terms of their yep. development so saying saying actually there's god up there who will discipline you um if you're going wrong mm. is much nicer than going wrong on your own Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that. You've um, I, I was, yeah, I was struck by the the just the string of Old Testament references. I mean, it's not surprising because this is the book of Hebrews. It's been full of Old Testament references, but picking up in verse um, sort of fourteen, or really mainly in verse six. So sixteen, there was a comparison to Esau. Then in eighteen. Um, and onwards for a few verses, it was the Mount Sinai and the and the experience that they had there with Moses. Um, and Moses himself was so terrified at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. Then 
we come to Mount Zion, city of the living God. That, I'm not entirely sure what, I'd have to do more reading to find out what that might have brought to mind for an, an early first century Christian era community. But Mount Zion is absolutely very regularly attested to in the prophets. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's invoked as this picture of the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of Israel. You know, exalt Mount Zion. Um, and all of the all of the surrounding nations will come to Mount Zion to worship the God. And all, I'm I'm thinking of those sorts of passages. Um, so, yeah, we, it's as if the the author of Hebrews is suddenly halfway through this chapter jumped back to this anchoring in in a snapshot of of references back to familiar stories for the audience from the Old Testament. Yeah, he's certainly really getting to the point, isn't it? Um, mm. And I don't want to preempt too much by looking ahead but there's no yeah the next chapter is entitled uh, concluding exhortations in the niv right uh so there doesn't seem to be we've, we've talked about sort of the author ticking off the different metaphors for christ there's it doesn't mm. seem to be any more left in the book he's really getting to the so what does what does this mean um one of the problems is if the book is written to a people under persecution and we're not in that circumstance. Mm. Uh, how, I mean, well, maybe we are in smaller or different ways or in analogous ways. Um, you know, what what does this book mean you know, for us? Uh, I mean, the exhortation to stay true is, I think, as relevant uh, now as ever. Mm. I think one of the one of the things we can draw from it is is the euphoric obsession with Jesus as being a fulfillment of and a superseding of all the other things that, that have happened in the history of humans trying to interact with and understand God. Mm. So I, I read the book of Hebrews. I, I'm feeling it as being a very, very strong endorsement of of the Christian path for following God, mm. where we see Christ as being supreme. You know, I just, I just love these verses, picking up in verse 22, and and on to to verse twenty four. It just it's. I feel like this might almost be the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. We'll have to wait and see if this might be true. But just listen to it. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God Himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. That that could almost read like a very early prototype creed, couldn't it? Mm. Um, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, God's firstborn children, God himself, Spirits of the righteous, Jesus and the blood. It's it's a it feels like something that's designed to to almost be be memorable, almost be a sort of a, a list mm. that you can go over yeah. and maybe repeat or recite. And it's a it's a almost like a sort of meditation to focus your attention on the things that really matter. And the the point is that it is not obvious from the people's immediate experience that they mm. have come to the heavenly city yes and i was thinking about this um when it came to i'll talk more about this next week's recording 
um, in concluding thoughts and develop it further. But um, it, it is also not obvious that Christ is what Hebrews claims. It's, it's an argument that needs to be made. So, you know, back in chapter 1 when it says, you know, Christ is like the angels but better. Mm. Really? No, no angel ever appeared without people doubting, without people being certain that the angel came from God. Huh. And then Christ turns up in a town in the Nazareth, a shady sort of illegitimate birth possible, moving towns for the first couple of years of his life, um, growing up, learning a trade, you know, attending the village fair and all the rest of it. And then he turns out, he claims to be God's son. You know, that's not obvious. Is it? So so we say, you know, you know, Jesus is the new Moses. Really? Mm. Like Moses delivered the whole people from slavery. And Christ lived for 30 years and then died on a cross and was there for a bit more afterwards and then disappeared. And Yeah, the, and the Roman didn't, didn't, didn't drown the Romans in the water. People were subject to the Romans. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, you, you. I, I don't think we've talked about this enough on this podcast because it's only really an idea that's come to me lately. But we ought have a great deal of sympathy for the people to whom this book is written. Mm. They were undergoing tough times, and you know, um, in maths, in maths, we sometimes say in maths papers. If you're looking at a maths research paper, it sometimes says <coughs> it is clear that. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> and as a as a PhD student, you say, "Well, it's not clear to me." And you get together with four other PhD students. You read through the paper in detail, and over the course of a week, you get a sense of the gist of the argument. And you go see three professors, and they point you in the direction of four other papers. And then you go and you read and you read a reference book, and you go go to a conference. And then at the end of three years, you say, "Yeah, it is clear." <laughs> but the author of Hebrews is not saying it is clear that. Mm. As in, mm. as in, this is a case where an argument needs to be made. The arg- the argument that the author of Hebrews is promoting, mm. that Christ is supreme and the fulfilment of the faith, is mm. is not something that you necessarily will pick up from your own immediate experience. There'll be times where it just doesn't feel that way. And as the, the start of the chapter, lock where it says, um, you know, you thought your climax was at verse twenty two, and I think you might be right. When I was first reading, I thought maybe earlier in the chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, at least a climactic point is saying, all right, mm. this whole tradition that we've talked about, this tradition of God's continued and ever ongoing revelation of himself, you're part of that. So your own immediate experience, you're in trials and difficulties at the moment. The, their proximity to you make them look important because they're the closest thing. Things that are closer to you look look large. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a Fry and Laurie sketch in which Hugh Laurie depicts the average idiot on the street. And he's being interviewed about the first time he meets his wife. And he says, well, when I first saw my wife, she was, I was in this very spot, actually. I was, I was here and she was she was over there. And I remember thinking what a tiny woman she was. She was, you know, really tiny. And it wasn't until I'd known her for some time that I, I realised that that was just because she was standing a long way away. Um, so... Um, but, oh. So things close to us look bigger, and that's what the author of Hebrews is saying is. Yeah, I know things look, things look like this. Mm. Christ is is not the real thing, but you belong to a bigger tradition, and you need to avail yourself of that experience. Um, you need to accept your life as part of that bigger story, and uh, in that larger context, we see something that that you wouldn't see by yourself. Mm. 
That's such a good idea, Cam. I wonder if that might be a place for us to to wrap up this mm. episode. Because Let's- as it as you say it, it occurs to me that even even right now, we've we've alluded to the fact that we we all live quite comfortable lives. That's true, but even from a distance, there are a lot of people who are feeling overwhelmed by events, pandemics, floods, wars, um, pestilences. Uh, I mean, it's basically the four riders of the apocalypse um, out there at the moment, and I think the same thing you've identified could actually be true for us at the moment. There are things that feel enormous because they are close. Yeah. And, and so what you've just said is a really, a really strong idea. Yeah. Well, we will leave it there then looking forward very much to next week. We'll make sure Ken's on board as we, as we sort of summarize what we've learned from Hebrews. We hope that you, our listener have learned something too. And um, feel free to email us. The address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, last week, I referred to some comments that I'd sent in, uh, which just to jog myself to make sure I said them. And I haven't said them today either because I'm keeping them for next week. Um, <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be part of my concluding arguments, as it were. Um, the email address does not exist so that we can email ourselves. It is, it is so that if anyone has any ideas that they'd like to share, uh, you're welcome to do that. And uh, feel free also to share this podcast with anyone that you feel would benefit. And we hope you join us again next week.